Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So last week we began our series for Christmas looking at peace because uh, it's very obvious that uh, one of the greatest needs there is today is for peace, and it seems like it's also one of the more elusive things. Um, really, as we think about where we are and the things going on around us, there's a reality that, 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 that God's sovereignty is, is not in question and that he is wholly committed to our transformation. God made the ultimate sacrifice in that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, that Christ died for us. And that ultimate sacrifice led to the ultimate commitment. And because of God's character, he is wholly committed to our transformation, that you and I would become like him. And the reality is that God uses all things that intersect our lives so that we can become more like Jesus for our transformation. So last week, we actually talked about the having peace in the unplanned. When, when our plans are hijacked or they don't work out or, or, or there, there's things that come in that we hadn't planned on and how, how God uses that to grow us in, in surrender and in obedience and that when we let go of our plans in exchange for his peace, that that changes everything. And this week, we're actually going to begin to look at what peace is in the midst of the unfair. Last week, we talked about the un- unplanned, and this week, we're talking about the unfair. And just to kind of get a reference point, how many people feel like they've been treated unfairly at some point? Oh, I don't know, like in your lifetime, but even recently, anybody feel like they've been treated unfairly? Yes, this is a very obvious thing that we feel strongly. But here's the thing, in the same way that God uses the unplanned to grow us in surrender and obedience, I believe that God uses the unfair to grow us in our gratitude, which almost sounds weird because why would, why would something unfair cause me to be more grateful? That's just, it's, it's counterintuitive If something's unfair, then I'm upset and that I'm not grateful. It's something that's being withheld from me. But today I believe that that God gives us peace in the unfair and in the midst of that, he grows us in gratitude if we are able to see from the perspective that he's given us. Uh, Just to kind of get 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 a handle on the idea of fairness, fairness is kind of interesting because Our typical use of the word fair today uh, isn't necessarily about justice or equality uh, in general, the way we use it. It can be about justice or equality. Um, Like, I don't know, if if your family's maybe a board game family, um, maybe around Christmas you play, the holidays you play more board games, and there's nothing worse than in a board game when somebody isn't following the rules. And we say, you know, you're not playing fair and so that's, you know, that is a, that is a desire for, for, for justice or, or, or equality um, or impartiality. And, and so we want the rules to be apply, applied impartially. Unless it's me 
because, because I like to win and I don't want to lose and I want to have a good time. I'm not a big fan of board games anyway. So if I'm winning, I feel better about it. So it's okay if I bend the rules, right? You know, if we're bending the rules, then that's okay because it's only fair that we win. But, but, but also, like, we think of this uh, fairness as applied to, like, being a parent or parenting or being a teacher or, or a, government, a government official. There's something called equality before the law, the idea that everyone, the law is applied equally to everyone, which, which is good, and that's a just thing. But, but even, even as we look at all of those, whether parents or teachers or, 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 or government authorities, we see the lack of fairness or the lack of equality or justice as it's applied to all parties. And this is where fairness tends to become more about me and about what I want and what affects me more than anything else. Because our typical use of the word fair is, not, is, just, is, is more of a purpose statement for our moral superiority that, that we maybe deserve more or, or should have more or should have as much and, and it's, it, it's kind of that moral superiority with maybe a dash of victimhood, that I wasn't treated or that I didn't get something that I should have. As we advance and grow, fair becomes almost more of a whine. You think of like children who are growing and, and how, how you hear that. It's not fair, isn't just said in normal voice tones, that kind of has a whine tone, doesn't it? Kind of, it's not fair. And it's a, this isn't being fair. And, and we kind of grow in that. And even as adults, we, we kind of master that fair whine in our lives. And, 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 and I think the reality is that, that really our use of fairness actually describes something that I want that's being withheld. Something that I think I have some kind of ownership of or d- deserving for. It's, it's not fair tends to be a catch-all complaint with, an, with kind of an assertion of a wounded entitlement, something that I'm entitled to that I'm not getting. What's fair tends to be focused on me and not really what's fair for other people. It really has me as the focal point, the center. Fairness is, is inevitably biased toward me. Often what is fair to me is actually unfair to those around me. Uh, in fact, you know, I mean, if, if let's say you, you worked really hard for something and you, you got something and you come and tell me about it and you say, hey, this is what I got. And, and I think, man, that, I, that's really cool. I want that too. And I start to think, you know, it's, it's kind of unfair that you have that and I don't. And so I see that you having that is unfair to me, yet, yet you would look at me and say, whoa, 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 like I sacrificed and I worked for this. So it's, it's actually unfair that you would think you should have this without putting the work and sacrifice that I put into it. And so fairness really is, it, it really is this biased perspective about me getting what I want. And, and here's the thing, all of this doesn't mean that life is genuinely unfair on so many levels. There's incredible legitimate unfairness in the world that, that is, there's a lack of justice, there's a lack of equality. And, and that's something that's very real and it does impact our lives and it, and it is crummy, it stinks and it's real. But the thing is, we tend to judge fairness for ourselves by comparing but we tend to compare with people who have more, whether, whether it's material or appreciation or health 
or opportunity, and we rarely, if ever, compare ourselves in fairness to those who have less. Like, when was the last time you heard someone say, yeah, you know, I ran into these people, and I just, like, they didn't, they, they were really, it was really rough. They, they were really having a hard time, and, and just so many things that happened. So I'm thinking of adjusting my life downward so that it can be fair, so that I can kind of be fair with those people. You know, we don't do that. We don't, we don't look to, to downgrade our lives in levels of fairness. We, we tend to look to how we can upgrade and say, oh, well, well look at them. They're, look at how they're living. Look at their, their reputation. Look at, look, at, look at what's going on. Look at their opportunities. I should have those opportunities, and it's only fair that I get raised up to their level. And, and so how then... When life truly is unfair, how then can we maintain peace when life isn't really always will to a degree be unfair? How do we maintain peace in the midst of that? Because, because there's no context in which you and I will be treated fairly to the degree that we desire to be treated fairly for the rest of our lives. We will be treated unfairly. It's going to happen, and it will continue to happen. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is uh, the familiar story uh, of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Christ, how, how Luke tells it. And uh, it's interesting, depending on where you are in your life and what season you're in and what you've experienced recently, it's so interesting to me how Scripture kind of comes alive and, and things that are in Scripture kind of hit you in different ways as you're reading through it. Um, I've, never really, I've really, never really been hit by the beginning of Luke chapter 2, but just, just bear with me for a second and listen and see if you catch it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. A decree, really. A decree went out from the government. I, like, reading this now, I'm kind of like, okay, enough with the decrees. Like, no more decrees. Let's stop with all the decrees and let's just move on. And it's kind of like I've never read the beginning of Luke 2 and said, yeah, that, that verse frustrates me. But now I'm kind of like, yeah, that stupid Caesar Augustus making decrees left and right. Everyone has to go places. And, and so it's just, it's, just like, it's, it's just like it pops out. I don't know if it hits you that way, but for me, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm not super excited about Luke 2 anymore. Um, but... But anyway, so, so here's what we read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all, the, all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. That's a lot of information that gets flown over really fast. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So here's kind of the context. Every 14 years, the Roman Empire would, would have a census, and Caesar would make a decree 
and people would have to go and, and, and be registered. And, and this was for tax and military purposes. It was purely so that the Roman Empire could make sure that they were getting everything that they felt they deserved from their people and all of the civilizations that they had conquered and were under their thumb. And so every 14 years, they would, they would do this. And, and so it was required of this decree that Caesar made that every Jewish male returned to the city of his fathers to record his name, his occupation, his property, and his family. And so it wasn't like you just get this letter in the, in the mail that says, hey, fill this form out because we get more funding for the more people that are in our county or whatnot. It's, it's no, you have to up and go to where your ancestors were born, where your fathers lived, and you had to go and register your name and occupation, make sure that they know exactly what you're getting so they can get a cut in your property so that the, the, the Roman Empire gets a cut and, and your family to make sure the Roman Empire gets a cut. And so they had to go back to their city of origin. And it says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, that, that they were, actually they were already married, they were husband and wife. It says betrothed because as we talked last week, that, that Joseph had decided because of his dream that, that he would not take hold of the rights of intimacy of marriage, but wait till after the, the baby was born and then they would consummate their marriage. And so here they're, they're going to Bethlehem with a, a new couple with the wife who is actually about nine months pregnant because she has the baby when they get to Bethlehem, which means that like, it wasn't like she was like six months or maybe seven months and she was feeling kind of sick and she was like to her doctor, hey, should I travel? And his doctor was like, no, I don't want you to travel. Or no, it's okay to travel. And, and so, and so she, it's not like that happened. And so they get there. And so she's like nine months pregnant. She's very pregnant. Nobody's mistaking whether or not she's pregnant at that point. And so, so they have to take this trip. They're forced to go on this trip. And so what's kind of missing from like moving through this passage that maybe we don't get to dwell on or, or catch very, very much because we just kind of read through and we get to the cool part of the Messiah being born. What's kind of missing is that here's this, again, new couple, nine-month pregnant woman, and when they finally reach the destination of their arduous journey, there's no place to stay. And so they're in this cave or stable type atmosphere. And so here's my question about the story of the nativity. Earlier, we talked about this last week, that the, that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, you who are highly favored among women. He even repeats it a second time. He says, you found great favor with God. And so he's going to have your nine-month pregnant body go on a really long trip to Bethlehem one day. Like, does that sound like you're favored? Or does that sound like you've done something wrong? <laughs> or that God's not watching out for you? Like God's somehow missed things. Like it doesn't sound like this thing where they have to go all the way to, 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 to Bethlehem. Like it seems like it, it should be right or fair that Mary could have gone to her doctor and the doctor gave a note and she could show it to the Roman official and say, I don't have to travel because I'm like about to burst. And, and, but she didn't get to do that. And so it just seems very unfair that they had to do this, yet 
we know from Scripture that God was favoring them. Like, if that's what God's favor is, I'm kind of like, well, let's, let's hold off on God's favor for a minute. Because it just seems favor equals unfair. <laughs> and, and, and so really, Scripture is interesting because it doesn't focus on Mary or Joseph's frustration or their anger or them being just having issue with what they were being asked to do. It just seems like it goes. In fact, in fact, it's interesting that, that, that they, they just, there's almost nothing said. There's a little bit. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but it's interesting that Scripture doesn't talk about that. So what do we do when, when things are unfair and how do we have our peace in the midst of the unfair? Our cultural response teaches us a few things. Our society, when you run into the unfair, there's a number of ways. One, um, our culture says that if things are unfair, you can retreat into depression or isolation or just quit. Say, I'm quitting. I'm all done. You know, if you don't like what's going on and you feel like it's unfair, just stop playing that game. Just move on and take your stuff and go somewhere else. That's what we do when things are unfair. Or society tells us to find a way to get even. Get revenge on whoever it is that was unfair to you. Make sure that they experience what you experienced and make sure that they don't get away with treating you unfairly. See how it feels. Or our society tells us to maybe vow to never do nice again. And I don't know if you've experienced this, and I have never done this, but, but, but like when you're driving on the road and there's, somebody, there's that car that's kind of in front, maybe in another lane, and they see, they've been making some poor choices already, in your opinion, of their driving. And, and they kind of, you wonder, do they know where they're going? But they seem to want to get into the lane that you're in and you think, okay, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to let them in. And you let them in. And you always pay for that, right? Because they continue to drive horrible. And so I'm never going to let someone in again. I'm not going to be nice on the road again because you pay for being nice. I mean, you know, that's kind of what, I mean, I've never done that, but it's, it's society teaches us to do things like that. Or just become cynical to the point that nothing can ever be enjoyable. So cynical that whatever happens, it's all bad and it's all unfair and it's all against me and nothing is ever going to be enjoyable in my life. Or like in 2020, we'll kind of do whatever it takes to get what we deserve and all bets are off, as James puts it in in James 4, 1 through 3, where it says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And, and, so, and so we see all of these things. Sometimes it's just like, I'm going to take what I want. We see this over and over in our culture, and we see this over and over, even, even now, so much, that if, hey, if I don't think I'm being treated fair, I'm just going to do what I want. And you know, sometimes I feel like I can justify that. Sometimes I look at others and say, I don't think you can justify that. But see, I can always justify what I do for me, especially when I think I'm being treated unfairly. And it doesn't matter what it does to others, even if it creates an unfair scenario for another person, as long as it's fair for me, I'm good with that. And that's really the, the message of our culture. And you see, all four of those, all of those responses I feel for me, are an emotional cliff as if I'm walking that razor crest about to fall in one or all of those responses because they're really tempting. This is real. When I think about fairness and I think about 
what I've experienced, I feel like I've been treated unfairly. I, I compare myself to, to other pastors and even those who haven't had to live through the pandemic. And I think it's unfair that I have to do stuff now. It's unfair, I think, and I think I'm being treated unfairly when people, even people in the church, have such strong opinions so much that they know they're right and they certainly could make better decisions than I'm making. And I think it's unfair that they would treat me that way and say things that they really don't know what's going on inside. It's easy for me to, 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 to toy with that idea of, well, I could just quit and walk away. That's what culture says I should do if I'm being treated unfairly, if I believe that. Or, or, or maybe it's the idea, well, I'm just not going to be nice. If you want to tell me what you think, then I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm not holding back. But you know, it's interesting because I can't find anything in Scripture that justifies that. I can't find one thing in Scripture that says, hey, if people treat you unfairly, then you let them have it. If somebody says something to you, that you're, you're kind of like, you know what? Not only are you wrong, but I'm going to write you pretty hardcore right now. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And, and, so, and so what is it? If Jesus is our peace, then even the unfair shouldn't be able to rob us of our peace. I believe that, that the inevitable unfair in our lives, because that's going to happen to all of us, can be used by God to bring us to a place of gratitude and maintain our peace, which we talked about what that peace word means. It's, it's completeness, it's wholeness, that we're at peace. But I believe that God can use the unfair in our lives to bring us to a place of gratitude. And, and this is, here, here's, here's kind of the, the roadmap, the path to that. Here's some things that I would, I would suggest as you experience the unfair in life, Here's what I think you need to keep in mind in order to be at that place of peace and that God can bring you to gratitude. Number one is this. What happens in me is more important than what happens to me. And that's hard, isn't it? Because I'm very much about what happens to me. This has been done to me. This happened to me and I didn't deserve it. And rightly so, you didn't deserve it. But I'm very concerned about what happens to me and I spend way less time focusing on what happens in me. Because you see, what happens to you does not dictate what happens in you. You dictate what happens in you. So what happens in me when I see things unfair happening to me, it's not the focal point of what's happening to me, it's what's going on inside. And God, his desire is through those things to bring us to a point and a perspective of seeing him for who he is and becoming like Jesus through the process. Second thing is this, what I do is more important than how I feel. What I do is more important than how I feel. That's hard too, isn't it? Because we have very strong feelings. We say, you know what, I, I feel so strongly, I, just, I can't do this, I can't do that. I just, I, my, I'm, I'm just feeling really strongly right now. 
That's exactly where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that, that, that part in the gospel where Jesus is in the garden and it's right before he's arrested, betrayed, and, and he's taken to be crucified. And Jesus says, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass, let's do that. Basically what Jesus is saying is, I don't feel like going to the cross. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. I don't feel like going to the cross and experiencing all of this stuff. I don't want to do it. I don't feel like it. But it was far more important what Jesus did for us than, than how he felt about doing it. Paul says that Jesus despised the shame but embraced the cross anyway. And, and so what I do is actually more important than how I feel. I may feel cheated. I may feel slighted. I may feel that things are unfair, but what's important is what I do with that. Third thing is this, God is present throughout my response. God is with me in the midst of the unfair. He hasn't left me. He hasn't forgot about me. He hasn't turned his head. He's walking and watching at the same time. It's not that God's just watching what I do, although he is watching what I do, but he's not watching from a distance. He's watching from literally right beside me. He's walking with me right beside me as I'm walking through this stuff that's happening that can be really, really hard and legitimate stuff. He's right there. Fourth thing is this. We cannot give in to bitterness. Bitterness stalls transformation. If you want to look at what probably the greatest enemy of the transformation that God, the work of transformation God is doing in our lives, if you want to look at maybe what the greatest enemy is that, it's bitterness. It's probably, I would, I would argue that it's not even disobedience. I mean, you can disobey and that, I don't think that, that doesn't stall transformation. Sometimes that even heightens it. But bitterness Bitterness stalls transformation. We cannot give in to bitterness. It changes the way we look at God and his goodness. And the last thing, and this is the thing that I think brings all of this together to bring us to a point of gratitude is this. I am still the biggest debtor. I am still the biggest debtor. No matter how unfairly I've been treated, I have been forgiven far more than what I've been treated. I'm still the biggest debtor. God has had to forgive more of me than all the fairness done to me in my entire life. I mean, can you believe it? That God actually, I mean, it's hard. I know it's hard to believe that God would have to forgive me that much, but he did. And so recognizing in the midst of fairness, see, one of the things that I think fairness is designed to do or the unfair when we experience it, it should trigger for the Jesus follower the thoughts of experiencing something we don't deserve. And you know what the most unfair thing in the whole universe is? It's that God would forgive you and I that he would give me salvation and that he would work to sanctify me over my lifetime. 
That is the most unfair thing ever. Why? Because it's unfair to God. Because God doesn't deserve to have to do that. That's totally unfair. It's unfair that, that, that we turned on God. It's unfair that God had to sacrifice his one and only son for even the possibility to be forgiven. It's unfair that he has to put up with his children constantly disobeying and grabbing back and moving away from surrender rather than toward it. It's unfair that that God has to put up with all of that. I'm the biggest debtor, regardless of what's happened to me. And so dealing with the unfair in the light of God's forgiveness, his salvation and sanctification will point us to a place of peace and gratitude. Because when I experience the unfair and I remember what God has suffered for me, then I can't help but have gratitude. Because no matter what I've experienced, no matter how hard it is, God has done so much more. And I can live in a place of peace because of what God has done. You see, the unfair in our lives is real, but so is God's reckless generosity, like that he would put him into a position of unfairness on our behalf. See, peace in Christ, the peace that we have in Christ isn't fair, but we get to experience anyway. I love I love what it says in the narrative of the birth of Christ, where later all of these things, this horrible journey, this horrible journey that, 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 that Mary and Joseph went through. Let me, let, me, let me give you an idea here. Let me give you an idea because, because you see, we pass over these things and we think, oh yeah, you know, that, that was probably rough for Mary and Joseph to do. But, but to bring this home for us, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. I, I looked in, and found a, a number of uh, archaeologists who, who've studied that part of the world where Mary and Joseph would have m- taken their trip. Here's the reality of what they faced. The world of Mary and Joseph was a very difficult and dangerous place, one whose harsh conditions were not fully chronicled in the gospel accounts of their travels. Mary and Joseph, of course, lived under the burden of the Roman judicial and military rule. They were taxed both by the temple by, by the temple and by Rome. They had firsthand experience with the painful gap of inequality between the rich and the poor and the oppressive economic and social policies of the Roman Empire. The whole system of Rome actually was built upon the, the uh, inequity of people And it was thought to be either just a natural state of being or an inevitable situation. And they relied on that to keep peace and stability in society. Yet the the, the society that Mary and Joseph lived in was not at all stable, let alone peaceful. And so Joseph and Mary's hardship would have begun more than a week before the birth of Jesus. when, When they had to head to Nazareth in the northern highlands of Galilee to register for the Roman census. They had to travel 90 miles to the city of Joseph's ancestors south, and they went south along the flatlands of the Jordan River, then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem, pretty gnarly hills around Jerusalem, and then into Bethlehem. It was a pretty grueling trip. 
In antiquity, the most we find people traveling a day is about 20 miles. This trip was very much uphill, downhill. Mary and Joseph would have likely traveled about 10 miles a day because of Mary's impending delivery. And the trip through the Judean, Judean desert would have taken place during the winter when in the day the temperatures range from 40 in the 50s and it rains like crazy and at night it would be close to freezing. To protect themselves during inclement weather, Mary and Joseph would, would likely have worn this, these woolen cloaks that were constructed to shed rain or snow and under their cloaks these residents would wear long robes belted at the waist, tube-like socks, and enclosed shoes to protect their feet. And the unpaved, hilly trails and harsh weather weren't the only hazards that they would face on their journey south. They would face the most terrifying dangers in ancient Palestine in the heavily forest valley of Jordan where lions and bears lived in the woods. In fact, archaeologists have found evidence of, of, of those who would travel those routes would have to fend off against wild boar attack. So it's just every side. Not only that, but, the de- but in those deserts, there were bandits and, and pirates of the desert and robbers who were common hazards. And so this threat of outlaws would force people to kind of join caravans, trade caravans for protection. And that wasn't always the greatest protection either. They couldn't stop and do drive-through on the way to Bethlehem. So they had to bring their own provisions. And so typically they would have wineskins that they carried their water in with a lot of bread. The menu for the trip, this eight to 10 day trip that Mary and Joseph took would be for breakfast, they would have dried bread. For lunch, they would have bread with oil. And then for dinner, they would have bread with oil and herbs. So like fantastic meal plan. Like I can see how you'd get tired of bread at that point, even fancy bread. And, and so under normal circumstances, they would have expected to stay in the spare bedroom of maybe one of Joseph's relatives or another Jewish family. But, but because of the overcrowded Bethlehem, it forced Mary and Joseph to stay in, privative, in this primitive inn, which there wasn't even room for. And so they had to stay, which, which again, archaeologists look and they would, they've agreed that Jesus would have been born in, in a cave that was probably used for housing the animals that were taking people to Bethlehem. And so really the animals that would have been in this cave with Mary and Joseph would have been donkeys and maybe a few sheep. But because of the overcrowded conditions in Bethlehem on the night of Jesus' birth, it would have resulted in others being really close at hand and kind of in the way. Maybe she could have gotten some help, but there's a reality that these noisy, dirty conditions under which Jesus was born would have made this event anything but warm and wonderful and sweet and comfortable. Yet here's what Mary said of her experience. And this is where I see Mary being more concerned about what happens in her rather than to her. I think she sees that it's more important than what she does than what she feels. It doesn't sound like bitterness. It sounds like gratitude. It says in the text that Mary treasured these things in her heart. 
When was the last time I treasured the unfair in my heart because of what God could do through it? When was the last time you treasured the unfair because of what God could do? You see Mary responding with gratitude. Here's some questions that I would challenge you with this week to ask yourself as you process. Number one is this, is, is my disappointment in the unfair really about me and what I want? Because so often we like to say, no, it's about justice. But when we peel back the layers, it's actually just kind of about what I want. Second question is this, how do I typically respond to the unfair? And I'll be honest, my first initial knee-jerk heart reaction is I want to make things right for me, regardless of who gets hurt in the process. The third one is this. Do I see God's hand shaping my character and transforming my life in the midst of the unfair? Do I look for that? Like Mary? Like Joseph? Do I treasure what God's doing? Because I know the work that he's doing is for my good. I invite the worship team to come back up and we're going to participate together in communion. And, and here's what communion is if you really boil it down. Our practice of communion is remembering the most unfair thing that has ever happened to God. Have you ever thought about communion that way? What we're remembering is the most unfair thing that has ever happened to God. And it didn't have to because he could have stopped it. The most unfair thing in the world is that God would give up his life for a bunch of rotten sinners who don't even want his forgiveness. And so when we remember the blood of Jesus that was shed and the body of Jesus that was broken for us, we remember something that we didn't deserve and it was totally unfair to God. But Jesus says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember what I went through so that you can be thankful and so that you can grow in gratitude and be at peace. Because no matter what happens to you, it doesn't actually match what happened to me. And I, and I would imagine that night that Jesus was with his disciples and he was breaking bread and he was passing the cup that he was saying, guys, I want you to understand something. You're going to experience a lot of horrible things that stink because of me. But I want you to know something. That every time you experience that, you can be reminded. You can be reminded that that I gave more than you can ever imagine for you. And that even though you're the greater debtor, your debts are forgiven. That's what we remember in communion. We remember that Jesus walked through the unfair to give us what we didn't deserve, to bring peace to our lives, wholeness, completeness. And that's why we pass the bread and drink the cup.
to remember what Jesus did. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.